Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 159 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lyme Therapist, an interview with Christina Kent-Savalos. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, this is a really interesting podcast because one of the things that we often criticize the medical community for is essentially segmenting or specializing to the point where they don't really have the ability to treat the whole person. And I kind of felt convicted after interviewing Christina because I feel like I've been doing the same thing, that I've been breaking up the physical and the emotional elements of Lyme disease. And she made it very clear that we are making a mistake by doing that. And Rich, this was such an awesome interview. And we've been looking for somebody in the Lyme community who has become a therapist after going through a Lyme journey. And Christina is just that. She talked to us about so many powerful things and went into great detail about specific detox protocols and also ways to retrain your brain to heal from Lyme. She also went into not only just surviving from Lyme disease, but thriving with Lyme disease. So Matt, despite my best efforts to try to get Christina to focus only on the psychological, she resisted every effort that I made to do that. And she kept making sure that we understood that Lyme was a psychological illness but it was also a physical illness. And it's not always easy to tease out the difference between the two. And this was just a really, really great interview. And I'm really excited to introduce the Lyme therapist, Christina Consavalos. Hey, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time coming and I'm thrilled. Well, we're really thrilled to have you as well. It has been a long time coming and we are so excited to present you to the Tick Bootcamp community because you're going to bring some stuff to this community that no one else has before. I don't want you to be too anxious about that because Matt and I are going to be very gentle, but we are going to require you to give a lot to the folks who are listening to this podcast, and we know you're going to be able to do that. So, Christina, talk to us about where you live. I live in Joshua Tree, California, right outside of the National Park. I moved here over the summer. Are you a native of California or did you grow up somewhere else? I am. I'm, I'm native to Southern California. Um, I was born in Long Beach, raised in Orange County, went to school in Los Angeles. After grad school, moved to San Diego and then ended up here. So talk to us about what your childhood was like. What did you dream about doing when you were a young gal growing up in Southern California? Uh, I dreamed of so many things. Um, at one point, I knew I wanted to. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a singer. Like you named it, I wanted to be a, a gymnast. Like you name it, I wanted to be it. I had um, so many. Oh, a roller coaster engineer. That was something for a while. <laughs> um, yeah, I just. I remember having a very strong imagination and dreaming up all sorts of things. So what drove you to the college that you went to and the major that you ultimately majored in? Well, I, UCLA, I ended up at UCLA. It wasn't necessarily my first choice. However, they did offer me a full ride for undergrad. I really actually wanted to go to UC Santa Cruz, um, but financially it just made sense for me to go to UCLA. And I, initially I was an anthropology major. Um, I was just fascinated by by everything related to cultural anthropology. I was really excited about it. Um, but then the major was so impacted that if I continued on with it, it would have taken me an additional one to two years. So I ended up switching to Latin American studies and Chicano Chicano studies, which was pretty kind of parallel cultural anthropology in many ways. And yeah, I was, I was really happy with it. However, um, 
it's not, you know, it doesn't lend to the most lucrative career uh, as far as an undergrad uh, degree is concerned. So I ended up deciding to go and get my master's in social work. And that was just because um, I really enjoyed helping people help themselves. And, you know, I had a friend's mom who's a social worker really pushed me to go and do it. She's like, you're the perfect person for it. You're so empathic and sensitive and it just makes, it makes sense for you. Um, so I decided to move forward with that. And again, ended up at UCLA. Talk to us about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases from your educational experience as a public school student in California and ultimately a college and graduate student in California. Are you ready for it? Nothing, nothing. I knew nothing about it at all. Peripherally, I had heard about it and that was the extent. There was, I mean, you could have offered me a million dollars to explain anything related to tick disease or illness or co-infections and I wouldn't have been able to answer anything. Now, I understand you're also a gal because you were majoring in, in, in these cultural studies, mm-hmm. probably did some traveling. Um, <laughs> during, your, during the course of your travels, did you ever learn anything about ticks or tick diseases? Definitely not. Definitely not. I did contract like dengue fever as well as malaria at one point, um, tapeworms, scabies. I've, I've like, it's a joke. Like I've, I'm like, I just go down the list of what I can collect as a souvenir when I travel to, uh, you know, often tropical third world areas. Um, so no, I've been very sick on my travels, but none of them educated me on uh, tick-borne diseases. Now, before you took any of the trips that you took for your for your cultural travels, mm-hmm. um, were you given information about the different diseases that you may confront and the vaccinations, for example, you may take to protect yourself from something? Um, not re- again, not really um, at all. <laughs> no, no, honestly, no. So. So talk to us about when you first started to show the symptoms of what you now know to be your tick disease. Okay, well, I've had some chronic illness since infancy, but at around eight years old, I began having migraines. And then in junior high, I had the the typical Bartonella stretch marks on my inner thighs. And with that came a panic disorder. That's what I was diagnosed with. I started having panic attacks all the time. I also um, started fainting. We didn't know why I was lightheaded or why I was fainting. Um, And then sleeping. I remember for the longest time needing like 16 hours of sleep and not being able to pinpoint why and going to various doctors and no one being able to help us at all. Um, Then, you know, there was an, there was an ebb and flow to it. I started feeling better, but then in high school, I felt and looked really inflamed. I just remember not feeling well in general. Then in, then going to college that continuing and at one point breaking out in, in acne and having like PCOS symptoms. So they had diagnosed me with that, but the acne wasn't going away. And then turns out I had celiac disease 
And, oh, and I should also mention when I was 19, um, I went to a cardiologist. My brother had passed away of cardiomegaly. So I went to go rule that out. And that's when I was diagnosed with POTS. So I was 19, which was pretty, uh, that doctor was, that cardiologist was ahead of his time to diagnose dysautonomia. Not many, I mean, still to this day, doctors don't know what dysautonomia is. Um, so I had that diagnosis with me. And then, yeah, I collected celiac disease. I just collected them as I, as I moved forward, uh, hypothyroidism. And I was able to pretty much, you know, move through life with these symptoms and diagnosis. Like it didn't really impact my day-to-day -day living. Yeah. Like in retrospect, I was like, wow, like my life was made a lot more difficult for sure. I can, I can see that now. And as far as my concentration in, in school and, you know, just how I processed information, uh, but I didn't know any better. Uh, and then I started doing, after grad school, my focus was humanitarian work. So as soon as I was, was licensed, because it takes a really long time to become licensed as a psychotherapist, especially in the state of California, it's 3,200 hours post-grad under supervision. So it takes like on average around six years to complete. Um, so after I got my, I received my license, I'm like, okay, first thing I'm doing is I'm applying for Doctors Without Borders. And I was super honored because they accept hardly anyone to be accepted in, but it, it's a process to even be um, matched with a, with a country or project. Um, so I started working for other NGOs and for example, Red Cross is after disaster mental health. I would show up after disasters and, and you know, I work 12 hour shifts ongoing on an ongoing basis, like really without very many breaks, which, you know, was an issue in and of itself, but also a reflection of me not, you know, being able to speak up on my, on my own behalf and my, my health. And so what would happen is I'd go do these and I would be done for a week after I was so fatigued and knocked out. And I couldn't, I couldn't really understand why. Um, and then I went to, to Mexico after, after was it the 2018 earthquake and I was like about an hour, an hour and a half south of Mexico City. And, you know, we were creating sort of like a, a mental health plan, disaster plan. And I started experiencing really strange symptoms more than, more than before, like not being able to swallow, feeling like my throat was closing up, really just fatigued, um, unable to think straight. My stomach started hurting. I couldn't keep anything down. I got to the point where I ended up in their hospital there and I had, a, I had a terrible reaction to IV antibiotics and I had to cut, unfortunately cut that contract and get home because I needed to be somewhere where I had health insurance and family. When I, when I got back, I went to go see very specialists, a gastroenterologist, you know, I, I had another endoscopy and colonoscopy. And I, I was just being passed around from specialist to specialist. And each one, I was just collecting more and more diagnosis from like uh, lupus, mixed connective tissue disease, Sjogren's, like you, you name the autoimmune disease. And I've likely been diagnosed with it at some point. But meanwhile, all they wanted to do was stuff my face with steroids, which I refuse because I'm like, you know, it's not that I'm anti-steroid necessarily. I think they're amazing for acute situations, but 
that's not, you're not going to find the root cause by giving me um, steroids. It's going to just potentially lead to more issues later down the road. As we know, they have tons of side effects when with prolonged use. I ended up, a friend of mine had recommended Bastyr University in San Diego. They're a naturopath university, sort of new to San Diego. They started out of um, Seattle, Washington. I went there and I think I remember that I was there for like four or five hours because the students see you, the med school students see you, and then their, um, their professor liaison comes and sees you to, to check what they've done, what they're testing for, that sort of thing. And they were like, this is uh, basically outside of our scope. We think you should see the doctor across the way. He is, um, he's a rheumatologist and he used to, I guess he used to teach there. You need to go see him. And that's what I did. I made an appointment and again, knew nothing at this point about any tick-borne illnesses and showed up to his office. He's like, tell me your story. And I do. And he just, he's just looking up and down on me. So looking at presentation and information I'm providing to him. And he took one look at me and goes, cat scratch fever. And I'm like, the sock? <laughs> That was literally my response. Like I looked at him so strangely and my, my former partner was, was with me at this moment. And we just looked at each other. Like this guy is a Looney Tunes. Like, <laughs> like what, where is he, where is he kind? I'm sorry to say that as like a mental health provider, but like, what, like, like, what, what is this? What is he making this up? Come on. Um, and he's like, no, it's Bartonella. Bartonella, it's a Lyme co-infection. He's like, I are, basically he's like, I already know just looking at you and hearing what you have to say, but we'll, we'll do some tests to confirm it. And he did like this ultrasound, he did ultrasound tests. He did all sorts of, all sorts of um, exams. And then of course, lab work. And I should mention before I got to this point, I was working, I'd returned back from Mexico. I'd returned back to my, um, cause I was working in a hospital for a long time. And then I was also doing home health, visiting patients in their home. And I was, you know, I'd be driving to them and like almost fainting at their house or fainting on the way. And the last straw was, I, I was collecting my paperwork at work one day. And I was like, I, I, I don't know if I did faint or I almost fainted. I just remember there were a lot of people there and like, luckily, you know, they were at blood pressure cuffs. So I'm like, Oh, maybe it's my pots acting up. So I, I'd known that was the last straw. I couldn't work anymore. Like this, this was in a, it was inappropriate and unsafe for me to work at a job like this. So Christina, in total, how many doctors did you see from the time you first began to show symptoms until the time that you were finally diagnosed with a tick disease? Oh my gosh. I mean, like since, since a young, you know, that young age, I'm going to say at minimum 50 to 75, I'm not exaggerating not, not even exaggerating a little bit. And again, no one, no one brought up that it could have been a, a tick-borne illness. And I think that is because we're in California where we don't have Lyme disease. What are you talking about? Um, which is, you know, now of course people are opening their eyes up to it, but for the longest time they did it. And that's when I was symptomatic. That's when I needed someone <laughs> to open up their eyes to it and present that as a, you know, as something to rule out in my, in my body. And when I, you know, I kept, like I said, I kept being passed around as like a hot potato, all these specialists in our medical system between Scripps and UCSD and San Diego. And um, one of the, one of the doctors I went to go see, I'm after Schickman, I'm like, 
because they had recommended one at UCSD and then and then my Lyme literate physician. And he was like, what? there's no such thing as chronic Lyme disease. Like your doctor, you essentially your doctor is lying to you and that can't possibly be it. And I was just like, oh, I, you know, there's, yeah, and we'll get into it, but there is such thing as medical PTSD. And if someone's going to coin it, it's me. It, it needs to be talked about. It needs to be said. And oftentimes it is, it is because these doctors gaslight us so much and it takes forever to finally get the diagnosis and what you have to go through all of that time in the interim of getting that diagnosis is so traumatic. And, um, well, let's anyway. talk about that. So, because okay. let's pause there, right? So you, you, sure. you went on this lengthy diagnostic yeah. journey. Yeah. How did the lengthy diagnostic journey impact you emotionally? Oh, well, you know, it, it made me feel like I was at some points, um, psychologically unwell because I'm like, am I, am I really experiencing these things? Is it psychosomatic? What, what's going on? Like, clearly these doctors don't believe me. And here I am losing, I'm losing my job. I can't possibly work feeling this way, even though they were so, um, supportive as a company, I was, I was contracted. So it's not like I was going to get disability pay. Like I was one of those really lucky privileged people where I had this partner who was like, I will take care of us financially. You need to take care of your health. And not everyone has that luxury. And I will forever be grateful to him for allowing that space to me to just focus on healing. But, um, for, for me to experience what I was going through, to, to experience what he was going through watching me and then eventually ending up couch bound. I had to move in with my parents because he worked, he couldn't, he couldn't bathe me. He couldn't feed me. Like I needed, I needed my mom who at that point was working, was not working and um, was home and could be my caregiver. Um, so to watch her, watching me was heartbreaking. Like there are so many emotional components to this. There was also the aspect that not many of us discuss, which is grief and chronic illness. I had to grieve this identity I once had as a humanitarian worker that I worked so hard to get to that point to know now, like with my doctor being like, you keep doing this, like you may die. Like this isn't something you can continue doing. Like you, I had to change my lifestyle to cater to this new identity. And uh, there was a lot of grief in that. So I don't know. I don't even know where to start as far as unpacking everything emotional that came with that. But there, there is so much. Let's spend some time talking about okay. the social impact of your diagnostic journey. Mm -hmm. Who else was affected and how were they affected by the diagnostic journey that you were traveling? Um, I would say, namely, namely my partner. And because, you know, there's this feeling of a lack of control. He couldn't, he felt like he couldn't help me. My parents, um, of course, you know, I don't know if you consider work being social at all, but I think that was, that was tough for them too, because I was like a star employee. And then they just basically witnessed me wither away and not know what was going on. 
And then of course, you know, my, my friends, um, as well, they, they totally, uh, witnessed me change. I wasn't the same person I was before. And yes, like we're constantly changing, right? That's part of impermanence. Like nothing, nothing is forever, but it was pretty extreme. And it was, it was difficult for me to witness them witnessing me. And did the challenges that your health presented and the challenges that it presented in your relationships cause you to lose relationships? I think it was part of the, you know, the ultimate demise in my relationship with my former partner. And that's, that's really tough. Um, as far as friends are concerned, uh, a lot of my friends do have chronic illness themselves and they were really understanding. But of course there were some moments of me having to cancel plans over and over again. And at some point people stop wanting to invite you because they just presume you're going to say no to them. And that was, you know, that was a little bit tough, but I accepted it because I get, I get to some extent where they're, where they're coming from. Uh, maybe they felt like they didn't want me to feel obligated to join. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm a pretty compassionate person and I figured, Hey, if I explain my situation and they don't understand, then that's more of a reflection of their own stuff, not my own. And um, I'm just going to move forward with my life. And if we meet again, some point in the future and can uh, have a dialogue regarding the situation. Awesome. If not, it is what it is. So how much of this journey do you believe caused you to pivot from your undergraduate course of study to your graduate course of study? I went, so I went straight into, into grad school and but you pivoted your career, or at least your career concentration. And I'm, my, I guess I'm wondering whether the experiences that you were having with your, with your undiagnosed at that time, chronic disease caused you to pivot to the mental health community. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think um, I have always had a pretty altruistic attitude and knew I liked to help people, but, um, this goes, this goes deeper and we'll, we'll for sure delve into it, but I had codependent attributes and that also, I think is part of the reason I got so sick. I'm, uh, I'm a recovering people pleasing addict. Like I like, I love to, to help people. Um, you know, I, literally can say I'm addicted to helping other people. And what, what that means is I place people before my, I, I did, I should say I'm recovering. So I'm trying not to do that as much anymore. And I think I'm somewhat succeeding, uh, but always placing people before myself, before myself, before myself. And that's something you see pretty, uh, to be pretty common in the chronic illness community where we people please, we we don't take care of our health, our well being first. We do that for everyone else and it's unhealthy. And I think that's totally part of the reason I went into a 
a degree of profession that reflects that because like I said, it's, it was like this dependence on, on helping others. Um, so there was, there was that. And also like, if we're going to dive deeper a little bit over here, you know, I lost my brother when I was 19 to drug addiction and I had survivor's guilt. I couldn't save my brother. So I want to save everyone else. Uh, so there's this, this ego shame component. And yes, like that may seem like completely like only, or I should say only mental health related, but it's also completely related to my chronic illness and definitely played a part in it. So talk to us about why being a people pleaser is not a healthy mindset and how much you believe your Lyme disease journey played into creating that unhealthy mindset. It's unhealthy for, for numerous reasons. I think we like, we totally put it on this pedestal. Like, oh, you, I like, I remember being called like a mother Teresa throughout my, throughout my career. And I, you know, people, people love a people pleaser. We were highly regarded. We, people want to be around us because we're pleasing them. We're taking care of them. And the reason we ultimately become people pleasers is out of survival. We so often, you know, there's, there's fight, the fight and flight response, but there's also freeze and there's also fawning and fawning is that you, um, if you're in a tra like traumatic situation, especially in a chronic sense, you want to appease everyone and everything going on to bring to bring peace to it and to ensure that you survive the situation. So you know that as long as you're like um, taking care of everyone else, fawning, like <laughs> not being in anyone's way, you're, you know that maybe you're going to avoid any sort of harm. The, but the problem with that is you, it continues on if you don't address it and into your adulthood. and you, um, it starts to affect everything. You end up in positions, jobs often where you go above and beyond and you're not, um, you're not praised for it or you get into a toxic relationship where you give, you know, 75% and they give you 25%. And you also end up a little bit resentful of that situation. Yet you you can't you can't stop taking care of other people or giving and giving and giving. And when you place people before yourself, you you don't take care of yourself, and it can make you really sick. And that's what happened to me. And I see it happen to so many others, and they wonder. They wonder why, and yet they keep doing what they're doing and they think they're being helpful. And it's, it's a way to gain love and affection, but that's, that's really, that's really not how it goes. When we take care of ourselves first, we take care of others. When we heal ourselves, we heal others. And what use are you if you get really sick and something happens to you? Like, who are you going to help at that point? Really? No one. So, so, Christina, let's pause there for a second. Sure. Let's talk about the fight or flight response yes. and how that presented in you. 
Was that a physiological response to your, your Lyme disease or was it an emotional response to your Lyme disease symptoms? I think it was a little bit of both, honestly. Um, I do, you know, in my heart of hearts believe it all starts emotionally and manifests physiologically. Um, but the physiological aspects keep you on that, that hamster wheel of fight or flight mode. And so many of us with chronic illness don't realize we're in fight or flight mode. Cause we're thinking like, Oh, when you're in fight or flight mode, you're running from a tire, you're having a panic attack. And it's like, no, 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 no. This can be, it's so chronic. It's so subtle. You wouldn't even realize it, but you know, you're in fight or flight mode when you have chronic illness, because your body is going to prioritize one of two things running from that tiger chronically, right. Or healing. It can't really do both. It needs to focus on one. So it's, it's so important to get out of that fight or flight freeze fawn response so that your body can now start focusing on healing that you can give it that space. So let's talk about the, what we were taught are the four F's from fight or flight. It sounds like you may be bringing a fifth F into that. So I, I, in, in some of the research that I've done, I think specifically, um, I think John Asaroff's work suggests that, that the fight or flight mode will bring you into fighting, fleeing, fainting, freezing. Now you're bringing a fifth F in, which is fawning. So let's talk about those five Fs and the impact that the five Fs have on your ability to heal when you're in the fight or flight mode. Yeah. So like I, like I said, your, your body's going to prioritize saving you like survival or healing. And we, when we don't realize we're experiencing fire, you know, fight or flight mode, it's difficult for our bodies to begin that process of regenerating and regeneration, I should say, and healing. Um, so I think the first step is recognizing you are in fight or flight mode to, to begin that, that true healing journey. Because when treating Lyme disease, we are so focused on just the physiological and we don't think about the mind and body connection. And they are one, they are not disconnected. They are one, one affects the other and the other affects the other. And it's, it's, it's cyclical, it's ongoing. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's bring this back to your experience. Mm -hmm. For how long a time were you in fight or flight mode? And was it constant? Meaning were you always in that mode between the time that you first started showing your tick disease symptoms and the time that you were diagnosed? Or was this something that came, came in and left? I think that it was, it's chronic. It's sort of like a chronic illness in that respect. Um, it's not, it, it can present as acute, like for example, an actual panic attack, uh, but it can also be so subtle that you, you don't really notice. It doesn't impact your day-to-day -day living to the point someone was like, oh my gosh, you, you know, your cortisol levels are off the chart. You need help, you need help. You need to get to um, the ER or the hospital or see a specialist. Um, and that's what's scary about it because it, it can be that subtle. So to answer your question, I think I have personally been in chronic fight or flight mode for a long time and, you know, it impacts your immune system. We don't, you know, you're in, you have the sympathetic system of 
calm, you know, that calms you down, you're in a calm state. And then you have the, the parasympathetic system that responds to, to danger. And I've, I've been in that parasympathetic mode for, I think I'm out of it now, thankfully, but I was in it for a very long time and it impacted my immune system and made me susceptible to various diseases manifesting in my body on a physiological level. So how does the fight or flight mode impact your immune system? Well, <laughs> again, like when you're, when you're in fight or flight mode, you're, your, your body has to prioritize survival. So your immune system function is going to be on the back burner while your body continues to run from danger. And when it's on the back burner, it's not able to maybe fight the various things that you have going on because we know that you can have Lyme in the body for a long time and then see it triggered. Um, and I do believe that various emotional responses, traumas, so on and so forth can trigger disease. So let's talk about the fight or flight mode and how it sort of becomes a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. it, it almost sounds to me like your, your body went into fight or flight because of, because of a physical illness. And then what was happening is as events in your life were developing as a result of this chronic illness, it continued to trigger the fight or flight mode. So for example, when, um, when um, you couldn't think clearly, Mm -hmm. you, your body was feeling attacked. So you had a, you had a fight or flight response when you had friends who didn't understand how you were feeling, you went to fight or flight and, and that just keep, it kept triggering and triggering. Sure. And triggering. sure. So, you know, we, we get to the point with, especially when we've had various, various traumas. And in this case, chronic, well, we talked about, you know, medical trauma, which is a real thing. I'm going to keep repeating that because it, it totally, it totally is, you know, we get to a point of needing a certain level of adrenaline and we kind of end up attra like attracting to things that, that keep us at the certain level of um, fight or flight mode, if you will. So just that parasympathetic elevated response. Um, and you know, we, we become like chronically afraid, scared, um, frustrated, mad, and these sort of emotions uh, keep us at that level, right? It's, it's almost, it's difficult for us to think in this, in this positive way, because that's not as exciting. And I mean that in the sense of it doesn't match the adrenaline rush that keeps us in this chronic fight or flight mode. So we don't even realize we're seeking things to get us there. And we, you know, we briefly talked about like sometimes these, there's these like support groups out there that are supposed to be supportive, but they end up being really negative. And we don't realize that's feeding our adrenaline, that's feeding our chronic fight or flight mode. Um, and we need to get out of it. We need to get out of it. That's not that's not healthy. That's not going to help in healing our bodies. 
So talk to us about the emotions that are triggered by the fight or flight mode and what chemicals are released during that uh, fight or flight mode. So when, um, when there's anything, you know, we come up against anything stressful or like really exciting, our bodies release cortisol and cortisol is a stress hormone. It's wonderful if again, you're in like a super stressful situation and need to get out of it, um, you know, out of for for survival purposes. But what happens is when you are chronic, like when you're releasing it on a regular basis, um, it starts to affect your body on a physiological level. It's not, it's not a hormone you really want to be pumped into you on a consistent basis. You know, we really want our hormones to be, to be balanced and, um, cortisol affects our immune systems function. It really, uh, it really impacts it in a negative way, which is why often Lyme literate physicians will test your cortisol levels to see, to see where you're at now in terms of what they do to help with that is a whole other podcast episode because we need to talk about the emotions related to that, but it's okay. Um, so yeah, that's, you have this cortisol pumping. You also, your, you know, your limbic system, your reptilian brain, that's also uh, impacted. And you just, you just continue to be in this chronic survival mode. Um, and it's just not healthy for your, for your body or your mind. So let's talk about the mind and what is unhealthy about the mind, meaning what emotions are the cortisol and the adrenaline causing you to feel when you're in this chronic state of fight or flight? It's, it's fear, fear. That's the biggest, the biggest emotion and, um, fear in itself. Like we said, it puts you in that, in that, uh, sympathetic response. It makes you pump out that cortisol it gets your limbic system revved up and you just, you know, what, why, what, what, um, what is it? What fires together, wires together. So we start associating certain things as being negative when maybe they're not. And, um, it's kind of a snowball effect, honestly, honestly. So how did that present in you on your diagnostic journey? Meaning now these, these, these fires together goes together. Is that the, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 With fires together, wires together. Um, what happened was that I started creating negative associations with everything. Like I couldn't. Okay. So I was, I had, um, photosensitivity, so I couldn't, couldn't go out in the sun. God forbid. Um, I couldn't walk more than, 100, 100 feet without feeling faint. So I developed this like phobia around walking too far. I had a, I started having, um, cause I have mast cell symptoms, which can often manifest because of Lyme disease. I was reacting to so many different foods. I was down to 20 quote unquote safe foods, right? In my head, it's like, what is safe? What is dangerous? There's no, there's no gray area in between. Um, I, if someone wanted to hang out with me, they couldn't wear any synthetic, um, sense they had a they had to wash their clothes and i mean in my recommendation everyone should live a non-toxic life anyway like nothing should be scented because unless it's like essential oils 
because it's just not good for us or they're endocrine disruptors. But again, another, another story. Um, but like, I got to the point where I couldn't, if I was in the grocery store, I couldn't walk down the cleaning aisle. Um, my and, and it made, it actually revved up my, my partner's sense of uh, smell and same with my parents. Like they would walk ahead of me places to let me know if something had any sort of scent. And then I started wearing a mask places. Um, yeah, I developed a fear around just about everything. Couldn't drive. I was so fearful of that. God forbid if I was driving, I ended up in traffic. Like that would cause me to go into full panic mode. Um, and I just, I noticed that my my food options were dwindling. Like I, I couldn't have any real like social interactions. I became so scared of the world around me. And it was really sad to watch because if you knew me from before, I was this like really just like risk-taking traveler who tried and did everything and was so fun-loving. And I just felt like, I don't know, a, a body with nothing going on, but, but fear and survival. That's, that's where, that's the point I had gotten to and being couch bound and having to be taken care of by my mom. Like that wasn't anything I could have, I would have ever, you asked me what I dreamt of as a kid, definitely not that, <laughs> you know, that was, that was a, a huge fear for me. I wouldn't have wished that upon anyone. And I was there, I was experiencing it. So Christina, you were talking about the reptilian brain and the impact that being in fight or flight had on your brain processes. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us what impact that had on your cognitive thought processes and your ability to think when you were in that fight or flight mode? Yeah, um, it, it caused an ability to not be able to think because I was hyper-focused on survival. I, I needed to make sure I was constantly quote unquote safe. And what I associated with safe, I mean, going back again to what wires, you know, what, <laughs> yeah, what, what wires together or what fires together, wires together. You know, I, I started wiring all of these things to one another, what was deemed safe, what was deemed dangerous, except my list of safe, what like became barely anything at all. And what became dangerous was this long list. And that was my limbic system, my reptilian brain, you know, trying to save me or so I thought, you know, so I thought because, you know, and, and the limbic system's amazing when it comes to like associating things with danger. Like, you know, we're as kids, we may touch fire and realize, oh, that hurts, you know, that burned. And then we, we wire that in our heads. That's, that's the, like the best example of it. So we, we officially wired touching fire does not feel good. Well, in chronic illness, we start to wire so many things. It's not just fire. It becomes things that even are really healthy and good for us often. And we associate it with being negative. Um, so what did you ultimately conclude was negative that prevented you from getting the help that you needed to get a proper diagnosis? Um, well, I, so I'd gotten a proper diagnosis and I'd started treatment and that's, that's when like the snowball effect really took place because I was herxing so much 
from my medications. And I, I mean, I got to the point where I was so desperate. I'm like, these supplements are only getting me this far. Like I, I need something more. And I wasn't, to be honest, I wasn't even as a, someone who's a psychotherapist, I mean, I wasn't thinking straight at that moment. There was really no critical thinking happening. I, um, I wasn't thinking about the mind body connection and, you know, healing past traumas, um, where I was just in my thinking patterns in general and how that affected me on a physiological level. And so I was desperate. I was asking, you know, anyone and everyone, how did they heal from chronic illness? How did they heal from Lyme? And, you know, there, you know, we've talked about this, there's no one size fits all approach, but I really was taking so much into consideration and it took me journaling <laughs> and well, you know, we can get into that, but it took me journaling every day and, and with simple prompts. So I wouldn't have to think too hard about it because I really experienced extreme brain fog to start connecting the dots and what was affecting me day to day. And that's what got me to do something called EMDR, which is what uh, this amazing uh, therapeutic modality, especially for trauma, especially for fighter, getting you out of that fight or flight mode response, in addition to completing a neural retraining program. You know, the combination of those two things, of course, there were, there were other components as well that helped me heal, but those two things got me out of fight or flight mode. Those two things got me to the point where my body felt safe enough to start healing. So let me bring it back to your diagnosis. You were finally diagnosed with Lyme disease when you met with a doctor who diagnosed yeah. you with cat, cat scratch fever. Mm -hmm. What other diagnostic tests did the doctor do and what else were you diagnosed with other than the clinical diagnosis of Bartonella? Um, so I was diagnosed with like uh, Lyme disease, Bartonella, um, various, various strains of, of both, um, mold, um, let's see, heavy, heavy metals. I also had parasites in the beginning and it, you know, it's one of those things that's like, which, which do you take care of handle first? Um, now you're still in fight or flight mode, right? I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you're so, oh, oh yeah. Let's pause there for a second. When you finally get your diagnosis of Lyme disease, what impact does that have on your fight or flight mode? Is it making it better? Is it making it worse? Or um, like a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B in the sense that I felt vindicated. Like I am not making these symptoms up in my head. You know, I knew nothing about tick-borne illness before. And now reading about it, it's like, oh my gosh, like this is exactly what I have. I was, there was also this like sense of sadness of why didn't anyone else ever bring this up as a potential diagnosis. And then there was me getting into these like support groups and reading about it and going, oh wow, I don't know if I'm gonna survive this. This is really scary because you don't read too much about success stories. Like when I was initially diagnosed, I didn't really see success stories on social media and in these groups. Now, of course you do. And I'm so glad for it. And it's 
really important that when we get to that point, we share our stories to provide hope to others. Because at that moment in time, I wasn't seeing those stories. So I was mortified. I'm like, am I, am I truly feeling the way I do seeing what I'm seeing? Am I going to survive this? And of course my Lyme literate physicians, like you are, you are going to heal from this, which those words were extremely impactful and important for me to hear, but it was, it was difficult to hear those simultaneously, you know, while reading about everyone's uh, trials and tribulations around the diagnosis. So you Discuss with us a little bit earlier, you, you got to a point where you crashed. You couldn't work anymore. You had to yeah. move back in with your parents. Your mom had to bathe you. Yes. How long before or after your diagnosis did the crash arrive? The crash arrived probably a month before my diagnosis, I would say. And I just deteriorated from there. And I was thinking the medications would help me, but I wasn't familiar with the Herxheimer, you know, response and reaction and, you know, how, you know, for lack of better words, gnarly that can, that can be and how it can knock you off your feet. So I was already knocked off my feet essentially, but this did me in and I think it was about six months of me being couch bound of me thinking I was probably going to die. I, I was, I, that's just the point I got to. I, I like, if I, I was imagining like the doctor said I had another month or two to live. I wouldn't even bother arguing. I would probably accept it because I felt as though my system was just done. I felt like my body was betraying me. I was, I was so frustrated. I was so mad. I was so angry at myself. And, um, and I'm, again, I'm going to bring it back to journaling. Got me, got me out, like gave me a light at the end of the tunnel to start seeing that there was hope to start seeing that I did have a future that I wasn't going to die. I was determined to figure this out, not just for myself, but for others too. Christina, I do want to point out, and I don't want to go too far ahead here, that you just noted that you felt like you were going to die. If a doctor told you you were going to die in two months, you would have accepted that because that's how you felt. And physically, that were that was true based on your physical symptoms. And fast forward, you were able to get better and heal. So I just want to give that little sort of foreshadowing ahead and provide hope for people that are listening. And when we get there to talk more about that. But I want to now kind of go back to your, your diagnosis when you finally got diagnosed, you were in such a bad state. What was it like working with these doctors? Were you leaning on your, on your mom and your family to help you make proper decisions because you were so sick? Yeah, I, um, I would have someone always attend appointments with me because of my brain fog to ensure that I was um, understanding and getting all of the information out of each appointment. Um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a group effort for sure, because I was not in the, the proper mind or mind space or headspace to be able to really understand, interpret and accept what was happening. 
And what was your treatment plan now? So you finally got your diagnosis with Lyme and multiple co-infections and mold exposure. What was your initial treatment plan with your doctor? Um, initially, he put me on something called Alinea. Um, it's actually an, a very strong antiparasitic, but it has both antiviral and antibiotic components to it. So it's been known to like hit, you know, two or three birds with one stone but it's very, very intense. I was also placed on like a plethora of um, supplements. I think I was up to 26 at one point at the height of everything. And then I got really sick with that. Like it, it seemed like after six months I was starting to get better and better and better. And then I got, I got hit again with the flare up. Um, and that's when I stopped, decided to stop the Alinea because it was so strong. And that's when like my mast cell symptoms came to a head or, and I was blaming mast cell for not being able to eat all of these foods, not be, being able to be around all of these smells. It, you know, I, that's what I mean. I just kept, I kept blaming what it really wasn't, which was no one was saying you're in chronic fight or flight mode. That's what's, that's what's happening. This is a snowball effect. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, it was, it was a linear, it was, um, IV, um, IV therapy. Um, and then I was, you know, I was seeing other practitioners as well, like alternative therapies to help me with like detoxing and just supporting, supporting my immune system. So Christina, can you give us a little more detail? What specific IVs were you getting? And what other things were you doing specifically to detox and help your body rid of these toxins? Uh, well, no one really explained to me when I was initially diagnosed how important detox pathways are. <laughs> no one explained that to me. And I, that's like, to this day, I, you know, it, that's still, a, um, that's one of my challenges is ensuring that my detox pathways stay open. So I was killing, you know, potentially killing the Lyme disease, the parasites, um, but not, not detoxing what I was killing. And they say like, kill, kill, bind, sweat. Well, I was killing, I was binding. It wasn't coming out. And I didn't realize that was just prolonging what I was experiencing. Um, I was with the IVs. It was like a, a Myers cocktail, except I couldn't do um, magnesium because of the pots. It would lower my blood pressure too much. And then at one point I was diagnosed with, um, like pretty uh, extreme hypoglycemia. And that was being caused by supplements. We didn't know at the time, of course. And this is why <laughs> just documenting what you're taking, what you're doing is, is really important. Um, so I thought it was the vitamin C because vitamin C can lower your glucose levels. So I stopped the vitamin C, I stopped the, the magnesium and I was just getting everything else. And I felt like I, I needed the, the IV therapy to keep me to keep me alive. It was like getting, you know, getting gas in your car, if you will. So two to three times a week, um, doing that. And that was primarily vitamins and the Myers cocktail and IV, correct? Yeah, exactly. And, and Christina, you hit on something earlier that I want to come back to is that you said that your fight or flight mode 
was the reason you were having a lot of these mast cell problems or food allergies or, or, you know, scent or smell allergies. Can you talk to us more about the connection between your fight or flight mode and your hormones and developing this, these mast cell problems, or as many people call it mast cell activation syndrome of Lyme disease? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I've been, you know, properly diagnosed with mast cell activation syndrome. I'm not, um, minimizing at all that it's not a real diagnosis. It's just that I wasn't, it's not completely to blame for, at least in my experience for what I, what I went through because, you know, I could blame myself for being down to, you know, those 20 safe foods and not being able to walk down the uh, cleaning aisle. I mean, I've always been sensitive to sense and whatnot, but what happens is your body, your limbic system starts to think that it's going, it's not just, it's not just harmful. Like this is going to kill you. And you, you associate it, you associate it with that. When in fact, like smelling something perfume, isn't likely going to kill you. Like, I don't think there are very many instances where that's going to happen. But like I, if someone thinks smelled, I'd be clenching my EpiPen ready to use it because it felt as though my throat was closing as though I couldn't breathe. Um, and that was like my cortisol going off. That was my limbic system being like, warning, 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 smelling this is going to kill you. Um, but that wasn't, you know, it wasn't the case. It just wasn't the case. And it was uh, neural retraining that retrained my brain to realize this, these foods, these, these scents, these situations aren't going to kill you. They're not. And I know that now for a fact, because I still have a mast cell diagnosis, but I am back to eating every single item I was eating prior to diagnosis, except one, like one thing, which is oysters. I had an anaphylaxis reaction to it. So I haven't reintroduced that, um, but I've reintroduced every other food and Maybe it felt like I was symptomatic for a minute or two after eating them. But with more and more exposure therapy, I was able to convince my brain, not only that it's okay, but what wires, right? What fires together, wires together. I fired that this food is safe. I'm okay. And so, you know, you think of what, what, what fires together, wires together as being something only, no, only negative associations. No, we can create really positive associations. And that's what I started doing. I can now walk through the cleaning aisle. Of course it's COVID, so I can't do it without a mask, but I'm guessing I would be able to at this point. Um, if I'm around a situation or, you know, I go to a doctor's appointment and there's a scent, I'm not, I don't feel like my throat's closing up again. So this is what I mean by, um, by, he you know, healing through getting off that fight or flight mode hamster wheel. It is possible. I am a walking example of it. And I know others who are also walking examples of it. And it's, I just and wish, I just wish I would have heard myself when I was really sick and, and had known this and had started that, that journey and that process. And uh, that someone would have told me how important that component is in healing. It's not just supplements and physiological uh, healing that's necessary. It's also, you know, your emotional and mental health that plays just as much of a part, if not sometimes even more so. And Christine, I think you're the perfect example of, of giving hope in every aspect of your healing journey. And we couldn't agree more that healing is both physical and emotional. And to your point about 
about mast cell activation syndrome. We've had many past podcast guests have MCAS, and we know it is a real condition. It is a real problem. But many past podcast guests have done what you've done. They've done things like EMDR or the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, as well as like DNRS to retrain their brains. And as a result of that, they were able to have either zero or significantly reduced responses to things that used to trigger an allergic reaction or a mast cell reaction. So that is possible. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, everybody should explore on their own individually, but it's something that's, that's a possibility or a hack or a tip to help people that are suffering from MCAS potentially. So the next piece I want to discuss with you though, Christina, is you went off this, this medication that was really this, this, this hardcore antiviral antibacterial approach. And, um, when you, when you went off of that, where, where was your health at at that point? Because you mentioned it was about six months. You started to feel a little bit better and you started to feel worse. When you went off of that with your, with your, um, your other things that you were doing, where was your health at and where did you move next in your treatment journey? So I'd finally returned back home to live with my partner again, because I was feeling well enough to, which was so exciting. And then this was trying to think, um, June, it was June. Yeah. I, um, start, it felt like I took 10 steps back and we didn't know, we didn't know why the, the fatigue came in. I mean, the fatigue was there, just not as terrible as it was before, but it came, it came back and I, you know, we realized it was because likely because the Alinea was on it for a really long time. So I got, I got off of it, but I was still feeling unwell. Um, and then I started almost having these, like these really terrible episodes and we thought they were POTS related. Um, I fainted. I remember it was, it was my birthday. We were supposed to go to Banff national park. And it was a big deal. Cause that was like the first time I had really traveled in a long time and en route to the airport. I fainted. Um, and my glucose was in the 40s. Um, so I noticed like I was having these really intense hypoglycemic attacks and we couldn't figure out what it was. And finally, like after a while, we realized it was one of the supplements I was taking. And I think it took me enough times of sort of having these like negative reactions to start really paying attention to side effects of anything I place in my body. And for me personally, it's anything that could potentially lower blood pressure, or blood sugar. I refuse, I refuse to take. Um, but it also lended to me fearing <laughs> taking any new supplement, like anytime. Oh, and I should also mention, I ended up adding a new Lyme literate physician to my treatment team as a second opinion, because these types of things I noticed it, there was a trend of like, I would be on a new supplement or a new treatment and I would get really, really sick. So I wanted just a second opinion to make sure like we were all on the same page. And at this point I kept thinking like my doctors know everything they, I trust them. They have, you know, my, they have the best intentions for my health and well-being. And I'd still to this day, do think that's that's true but it's unfair to presume that they follow my health to a t at all times when they have so many other patients to be concerned about so um i learned 
don't know if you want to say the hard way or whatever you want to call it, that I had to advocate and be on top of my health more than anyone else. Um, and I feel like I just digressed in answering your question. No, but- so no, Christina, this is all brilliant. <laughs> and the next question I want to ask you about is, in your pre-interview questionnaire, you talked about the impacts that EMFs had on your healing journey. So can you talk to us a little about how you came to that conclusion that EMFs were harming your, your healing and how you then responded to that and what you did to counter that? Yeah. So like anything that could be deemed toxic, I really tried to mitigate in my life. Um, so, you know, I started eating nutrient dense food and, um, switched over to, to clean beauty, clean, clean cleaning products. And that also included, um, you know, EMFs are everywhere, the electric magnetic fields, radiation, it's everywhere. Like there's, there's no way you can completely avoid it. But, um, I did notice that like, I got this like router cover. Um, I like have this case over my phone. I noticed just doing little things like that really, really helped me. Um, the, for example, I got the AirPods as a gift and I'm like, Oh, this is really, this is going to be really helpful to me. And uh, two days after using them, I experienced extreme vertigo and I couldn't figure out, I'm like, oh my gosh, what's, am I having a flare up? What's, what's happening? What's happening? And finally I'm like, oh, it's, it's the AirPods. So I, I am sensitive to EMFs more than other people. I don't think they're beneficial to anyone per se. I don't think radiation's bene- yeah, beneficial in general to, to our population, but doing what I can to, to mitigate exposure has been huge. And ensuring that I ground every day. I walk outside barefoot. I should also mention part of the reason I ended up here in Joshua Tree was because we had a a mold situation in San Diego. It's a long, it's a long story. Um, but I needed to get somewhere that was dry where I could just completely focus on healing. And out here, you know, we're outside of a national park. It's a rural environment. I came from an urban environment and I've totally noticed a difference in my health and well-being since, since being here. And I know the biggest part of that is that I'm in, I'm in nature and nature is so healing, but there's also just less radiation and it's drier. Christina, talk to us more about grounding. We've heard this mentioned by many people and we've touched on it, but never explored how it actually helps you. So you mentioned walking outside barefoot and grounding. Can you explain to us what grounding is and how it helps you? Yeah, so um, what grounding does is um, it's, uh, well, it does, it, it has a bunch of benefits. Like I know it can it can reduce like muscle damage and pain, um, but it's, you know, it's scientific. So scientifically, um, the ground has, um, negative ions and earthing or grounding sort of, um, here, I'm not, I'm not a scientist and it's like, (laughs) I wasn't expecting to explain it, but for my understanding, it basically pulls, uh, like, toxins, radiation, those sorts of things, and pulls it 
like pulls it into the into the ground and sort of oh you know what I feel <laughs> um I you know I just I know what its benefits are <laughs> um like inter I know it boosts immunity it regulates sleep um it reduces stress it's I know there's like an electrical connection to the earth's energy so this is sounding super <laughs> no no I think Christina I think you're you're spot on I think what you're saying is that grounding really it, it allows electrical charges from the earth to have a positive impact on your body there's a symbiotic totally. relationship between the earth and your body and when you your bare feet touch the earth there's a benefit to your health with that that those electrical charges basically I think is what you're saying right yeah like we're bioelectrical beings right and we carry this um this positive charge but that's you know that's not positive you think positive charge positive no but it, like that builds up in our in our bodies and we have the earth has negative ions so i know like when we when we connect with the earth that excess of of energy um like it, it produces a healing effect on a cellular level, like the, the negative ions and our positive charge. Like it takes that, it takes that out of us. And I know, like, like I'd mentioned, it reduces inflammation. I know it reduces cortisol. Um, it's supposed to increase energy. I think I already said like decreases pain. Um, I've just noticed when I do it, I feel really good. <laughs> So Christina, normally I focus heavily on the treatments and the supplements and the prescriptions. And, you know, as you probably noticed, Rich talks more about your transformation and, and, you know, the emotional component, but I, I just want to ask you, I feel like, and this is hopefully this is not coming across as a loaded question, but do you believe somebody can heal from Lyme disease without addressing the emotional and psychological impacts of having Lyme disease? Do, I mean, I believe anyone can heal from anything at the end of the day. That's what I, that's what I believe. That um, is a perfect answer to my loaded question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, you know, everyone's body is different, but ultimately you can heal from anything. And I, I just want to say from my personal experience, and again, I think not everybody is the same. I know not everybody is the same, but without addressing some of the medical trauma I've experienced, the emotional trauma I've experienced and being able to sort of unwrap that and deal with that, I don't think I'd be where I am today in my healing journey without going through that transformation. So I think that's sort of what I was trying to get at with that loaded question, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't. And I, I agree with you. I, the, you know, the folks I've been privileged to meet who have healed from Lyme and from chronic illness have all gone on that emotional healing journey. I've yet to meet someone who hasn't. I don't, and I, that's why I don't want to take that away from someone who has potentially healed without addressing the emotional component. And that's awesome if they have. I just, in my own experience, haven't met, come across them yet. <laughs> Listen, I'll talk to us more about where you're at with your health at this point, because now you're, are you still, are you still couch bound? Are you, are you able to now, you know, you're, you're back with your partner, you said, are you, I, well, you no, we were back, we were back together. And then, um, yeah, it, the mold situation happened in our home and, um, we decided to split up and then I moved to Joshua tree over the summertime. Um, I'm a completely 
different person in the best of ways. Um, you know, people talk about going like, oh, I want to go back to who I was and how I was. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like we are like this experience is only when we heal and when we can, we heal from it. I mean, I'm forever healing from it. I will, I know I will forever be healing, um, has turned me into such a better person in a multitude of ways. Like I don't want to go back to who I was because who I was is how I ended up with Lyme disease. That's, that's the truth of the matter. And I'm, I'm different. I, and I'm, I, I'm so much more healed. Like I am back to eating almost like I had mentioned all the foods I was eating before I can be around sense. I can go out in the sun for the longest time. I was afraid of the, the sun. Okay. Like I was afraid of everything. I can go on hikes. I like I, the amount of fear I had was like, I can't, I can't quite describe it. And I feel so sad that I was, I was living with that for a really long time that I was, that I was living in dis-ease and a big part of my healing was, or has been and continues to be prioritizing ease in my life. And when I feel uncomfortable, recognizing it and getting away from it. Um, so, Christina, I do want to point out for our listeners that, every, I mean, we talk, we've talked about a lot of things, and I have a few more questions before I hand it back to Richard. I'm sorry for dominating your, uh, your attention here. I know Rich is dying to speak, but this has only been over uh, about a year and a half, a year and a half window, right? You got diagnosed about a year and a half, two years ago. So everything we've been describing so far has been over the last year and a half to two years. Yeah, so I was diagnosed in October 2018, officially, yeah. Okay. So about two, a little, is that over, over two years? So in that two year window, aside from, because I, I specifically want to address DNRS and um, EMDR separately, is there anything you've done from a supplement, herbal or pharmaceutical standpoint that has helped you significantly that you can offer as a tip or a hack, or maybe something that didn't work so well that you can kind of caution our listeners to about in regards to herbs, supplements and pharmaceuticals? The most helpful thing was opening up my detox pathways, knowing what that meant, sweating, sweating once a day. And then at one point I was even like allergic to my own sweat. So that was, that was a thing. And that came again with that fear response. But the, for me, the, like the basics I feel have been the most helpful, not to say maybe Alinea wasn't helpful and, um, cat's claw, you know, cat's claw did make me feel better for a long time, but like the, the basics of vitamin D vitamin C vitamin B12. Cause I have an MTHFR. I'm homozygous for the C677T mutation, which I think a lot of folks with Lyme disease have this mutation and we need B12 in order to, to methylize and properly detox. So like, getting, getting on that, getting my levels where they should be. Um, and then you know, kind of slowly, but surely starting on binders and proper pro probiotics like Saccharomyces boulardii is a probiotic, but it also acts as a binder. People don't realize that finding binders that I could eat with food, because it was really frustrating when I got to the point of like, 
you know, you get so many things recommended to you, intermittent fasting, yet you can't eat anything two hours before or two hours after this supplement or this medication. And like your life, your life turns into this, um, I don't know, like this, it feels almost a little bit oppressive. So I think finding the, the supplements that work best for my body and my schedule has been a really big deal. Um, and I'm going to keep reiterating, not everyone's body is alike. So one supplement that works for me may not react well in your body. Um, There's a few things I just wanted to, to point out. There's so many, so many gold nuggets in that statement. The first one is you have the MTHFR gene or genetic deficiency, which means you have a problem detoxing and you overcame that by increasing your vitamin B, which allows your body to methylate or detox. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. And then secondly, you mentioned that you're using binders, which binders essentially take all these toxins and these, and the die off, you know, from things in your body, it binds it together, but then you have to eliminate or purge that, that stuff. And I think you mentioned earlier that you, you were having trouble actually purging. And then you talked about sweating. So could you just for a second, give us a walkthrough of, of, a what detoxing looks like for you from beginning to end to be able to bind and then extract or release all of these toxins to purge all this from your body and give your body a chance to heal. Sure. So, you know, the, the statement is kill, bind, sweat. So killing, you know, let's just say the lime spirochetes and then that's, uh, and then by having that bind to something. So it's not just floating around your, your system and then being able to detox it. And um, I had like, I wasn't really sweating and maybe this is TMI, but I wasn't really having bowel movements. Um, I didn't know about like lymphatic massage, like dry brushing or seeing a lymphatic um, massage therapist. Um, you know, there's, there's various ways to to detox and to open up your pathways, but it wasn't discussed with me. So right now, like I take, I take a supplement to help me have more bowel movements. I try to, I don't have a sauna. It's, it's on my wish list, but I try to, um, sweat once a day. And usually that means like going on a long walk. Um, or maybe if I'm really feeling up for it, uh, rarely, but <laughs> doing like a strength-based, <laughs> strength-based exercise. Um, and just eating extremely nutrient dense food that have detoxing elements to them. So that's been helpful. And I also like need to mention like holistic dentistry has also played a big part in my healing, in my opinion. I know we, I don't know if we're going to delve into that, but I have to make a shout out to it because when I completed all of my cavitations, which, you know, those are my cavitations were where my wisdom teeth were, and there were, and there were chronic infections and they were deteriorating my jawbone. When I properly addressed those, I noticed a change in my health as well. So I do want to come back to that, but to the, to the kill bind sweat, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's your framework to really deal yeah. with detoxing. The killing for everybody will be different, whether it's, you know, whether it's antibiotics, whether it's in your case, um, I keep forgetting the name. What was the name of it again? The, uh, which, antiviral antibiotic, the, Oh, the Alinea that I was Alinea. on for a long time. Yeah. Yep. The Alinea or, or maybe potentially cat's claw. claw. Exactly. Yeah. So all of these things are killing and that's going to vary from person to person, what their kill protocol is. And that's going to, that's the first piece of 
the detoxing framework. The second piece is the binding. And the third piece is really sweating. So I just want to go a little bit deeper into the binding and sweating pieces here. So from a binding standpoint, what do you use as a binder? Is it, is it activated charcoal? What specifically do you use to bind the toxins in your body? Um, so I use a cell core, this, uh, it's specific for, um, viruses or virus, um, and that one you can take with food. I also take chlorella and chlorella is awesome because it doesn't just, uh, bind. It also is a blood builder. So like if you have anemia, let's just say, um, any issues with like your hemoglobin, or ferritin levels, iron levels. This it's a natural blood builder, so it works as you know. Again, you're killing two birds with one stone. And then Saccharomyces boulardii, that also is a technically a, a binder and a probiotic. So those are like the the big ones I take. And then I am boosting instead of taking something that's necessarily going to kill, I'm actually um, boosting my immune system with taking like mushroom blends. Both of my doctors are on par with that right now, because if my immune system is strong enough and I can get my natural killer cells up because they've been low for a minute, um, my body will naturally kill what it needs to kill and get rid of. And then these binders are going to bind to it and I'm going to have open detox pathways in order to flush them out. And thank you for pointing it out. So killing doesn't have to be from an antibiotic or a, an herb or pharmaceutical. You can boost your immune system, yep. which will kill the bad stuff on its own. So that's yeah. another alternative to kill, which is very important. Yeah. Now, exactly. and that's not spoken about enough either, but agreed. When, you agreed. Know, yeah. Cause you know, Rich was saying like, he's had, he's been bit by so many ticks, but hasn't had symptoms. Well, that's probably because he had the immune system function to be able to take care of that for him. And, and the final piece, the sweat. So this is something we get, we get a lot of pushback from, from the community. So I'm hoping you can give us some tips and hacks and guidance on how to address this. So from somebody who's bed bound up into somebody who is in a limited manner mobile, how can somebody sweat if they are so sick, they can barely get out of bed. And that's it, you know, being able to purge these, these binders and these toxins is so important. What advice would you give to those people who are too sick to exercise and sweat on their own? Well, I had the privilege, my doctor's, my Lyme literate physician, he has a physical um, therapy office attached and there's a Pilates coach and she herself has, has Lyme, you name it, she has it, Lyme, so on and so forth. And she, uh, so I explained this to him, I'm going, I need a sweat. I need to, I know that I'm, I'm not doing well being on a couch. Like my muscles are deteriorating. This isn't like me at all. And then he was like, why don't you go see, you know, Michelle next door. And that's kind of how I started because she knows, she knows our bodies. Like she does a ton of research before she even meets with you. And she creates a plan that makes sense for you. And for me with being so symptomatic, especially from the POTS, from the dysautonomia, my blood pressure plummeting and feeling like I'm going to faint. I do really well um, with exercises lying down. So you know, there are exercises you can do couch bound, wheelchair bound, bed bound that still allow you to, to exercise and sweat without feeling like you're going to have a flare up or any other negative reaction. 
Um, so I started super simple, super simple. I mean, basics, <laughs> um, like I know Richard Simmons would laugh at me if <laughs> he saw where I started, I started off, but, uh, that's what gave me the strength and the foundation to be where I am today, where I could start tolerating more and more physical, physical activity and, uh, eventually sweat. And Christine, I think you just gave us another good tip or, or framework for people that are, that are bed bound or, or can, can't move around much. And that is doing their, there are ways to exercise laying down in bed or being in a wheelchair. And I think there's three major pieces to that. The first is it allows you to move and sweat, which helps you detox, which is the you know, initial question I asked you, but then you just, you went even deeper and you talked about that. It actually helps you move around because your, your muscles get weakened and you, you, they get atrophied. So it helps strengthen your muscles when you're bed bound, but also when you get to exercise, it also helps release certain brain chemicals that can make you happy as well. It sounds like, right? Yes. Yes. Good old endorphins there. Yeah. So there's, there's exercise, you know, we think, we think exercise and often we uh, relate it to weight loss looking good. No, what happens when you walk or do any sort of exercise, you are um, detoxing your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system doesn't do much on its own. It really has to be prompted and like walking is the best way to get it moving, to get it going. Cause you don't, your, your poor lymphatic system is what's, you know, uh, circulating and detoxing. And so that's like the number one thing is you are supporting your lymphatic system. When you do any sort of physical activity, you're also lubricating your joints and muscles. And for me, I have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And so I have, um, you know, some joint concerns and issues and I've noticed when I do, especially strength-based training, I'm less symptomatic. I, I experience less pain, less inflammation, that sort of thing. And then the endorphins. Wow, they're what? A, <laughs> they're so endorphins are so amazing to have. They're they have such uh, healing components to them. They're totally underrated. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> I, I do want to ask Christina because I you mentioned that you know you teased that Richard Simmons would be you know would 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 laugh, but I just want to I want to really emphasize the point that many people that are listening to this are very sick and are intimidated to even walk around the block. Can you give us an example of an exercise that somebody can do laying down in bed or sitting in a chair that can be beneficial to their overall health from a detox, a sweating, and an endorphin releasing component? Yeah. So like I started with doing things, um, on my back and it would be like as simple as like moving my legs to my head and, you know, back down on the floor again, like Michelle provided me with these really simple exercises, like just moving my arms up. If I felt comfortable adding some, some weight to moving my, my arms up. Um, and when the more physical activity I did, the stronger I felt and the more hope I had. So there's, you know, there's a, again, it's that mind body connection, but you're, those endorphins are essentially, they make you happy. They give you hope and it pushes you to keep trying more and more and more and more. So the, the last thing I want to discuss with you until you bring something else up that I'm going to want to ask you is the whole, um, this whole neural retraining part of Lyme disease where 
you have to sort of retrain your brain because of being so chronically ill, you have to almost reset your brain, right? And, and there are different things out there like DNRS that you mentioned and also EMDR. So have you done both? And if so, can you speak to both and how they've helped you in your healing journey? Sure, so not only have I done EMDR, I'm trained as an EMDR psychotherapist. Um, so I understand it. I started on the other side of the couch before going, oh my gosh, like I totally see the benefits. Um, so I did them in conjunction with one another, which was very helpful because one addresses your, your traumas and the root cause of your negative belief patterns and where you are today and allows you to release them. It's not like EMDR isn't going to change what happened to you. It helps change how you respond to what happened to you versus neural retraining allows you to start creating new associations, new neural patterns and pathways with things you once had negative associations with. So you're like EMDR kind of gives you this like clean slate to work with while uh, DN something like DNRS. And I think there's, there's other ones, Gupta or Gupta, I don't know how to pronounce it, organic intelligence. There's so many different neural retraining um, programs out there allows you to use that clean slate to start creating new neural pathways. So in combination of everything we've discussed over the past two years, from a from a medical to an herbal to a supplemental to a an emotional to a you know neural retraining, detoxing, etc., all of these things together have contributed to your current success. And clearly, I mean, we've been talking to you now for several hours, including our offline discussion. So, and you clearly have a very you're very smart, and you clearly are not having any cognitive issues. So, give us an assessment of where your health is at today, based on where it was when you were at your worst. I like, I am a completely different person. Like you were to ask my, you know, former partner, my parents, you know, where I was versus now, because they, yeah, I mean, to some extent it is subjective on their end, but they, they also see it um, objectively. They're, you know, they're just shocked. They're shocked because I think that they too had lost a little bit of hope at some point along with me. So to get from that point of like, Christina may not live for very long to Christina has is Christina's th- like, I went from surviving to thriving and like, I'm going to cry thinking about it. <sighs> You're making us cry too. So I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I just, you, nope. I think we're both crying now. <laughs> I, um, I thought I was going to die and I'm like, I am now in this beautiful place. I get to see the sunrise and the sunset every day. I don't have to depend on anyone. I'm able to eat the foods I wasn't able to eat before. I don't have to live in fear every single second of the day because that's exactly what was happening. Um, I can work. I'm. I mean, my work isn't conventional. It's not full-time. I create my own hours, but I'm, I'm working. I'm able to concentrate. I'm able to give people and things attention. I'm, I'm just so grateful. 
so grateful that I, I feel as though I've been given a second chance to live and um, words can't express my gratitude for that. And I hope and pray that I can offer the same to others. Well, let's talk about your second life, Christina. You are, you now have had your new lease on life and a lot has changed as a result of you going from hell and back, right? So yeah. talk to us about what you've learned about yourself on this journey and how it's allowed you to now pursue the purpose that you were created to pursue. I'm now a person who can speak their truth and not feel as worried about harming other people in doing so, being so obsessed and concerned about what other people are gonna think if I, if I, if I do that. Um, I no longer feel obligated to live in dis-ease and I did for a long time without even having any awareness around it. I now follow my joy. I, the more I follow the joy, the healthier I feel. I practice gratitude every single day. There's a quote in the, the journal, it's only one quote, and um, it, it got me through. Lyme disease. And it was, it's Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a famous um, Buddhist and really, really popularized mindfulness, but it's breathe, you are alive. And the moment I wake up in the morning and I take a breath, I just, my like heart and soul feel with, fill with, are filled with gratitude because for the longest time I was afraid I wouldn't wake up most mornings. And um, I, I don't know. I just, I live in a totally different mindset now than I did before. And I recognize when things are unhealthy and I do my best to nip them in the bud rather than just letting them simmer because the body, you know, there's Dr. Gabor Mate, the body says no, but it's true. When when we don't feel like something is in alignment with what we want and what we need, our bodies will eventually say no for us. And my body said, excuse my language, but F no for a really long time. And I ignored it. And this is what came up. So I now, you know, I now live in the, when the philosophy that if it's not a hell, yes, it's a hell no. What had to be stripped from you and from your essence in order for your body to stop saying F no? What were you carrying with you that needed to be stripped off? It was shame, guilt. It, you know, in EMDR, you, um, it's it's like the most intense part of EMDR. And Matt, you said you did EMDR, right? You haven't done it? Okay. I have not. Okay. Okay. So you, you find the negative belief at the root of your trauma and what you're experiencing. And this is super maybe dark and deep, but I needed to get to this point that I didn't believe I deserved to live and be happy. That is where and how dark of a situation I had 
gone to, and I didn't, I didn't realize it, of course, like it took a while, took many sessions for us to come down to that. And because that was my negative belief at the root of everything, I then put everyone and everything else above me because clearly they needed to live. They needed to thrive, not me. So hitting rock bottom emotionally and recognizing that was totally what, what changed things for me because I was able to do like uh, inner child work and realize, no, I do deserve to live. I do deserve to be happy. And I can do that while others do the same for themselves. It's not one or the other, you know, we can, we can all get there on our own. <sighs> and that, that is awesome and beautiful. And, and, and so, so talk to us about some of the tools that you've used on your healing journey and how you've now created these tools and, and are now offering these tools for other people to use on their journey. So, um, the, you know, I guess the, the biggest, you know, the biggest things are like, okay, finding, finding a treatment team that believes you that wants the best for you. Okay. That's like, <laughs> that's like where I, I always, um, that's where I always start with. And then that treatment team, in my opinion, needs to include a therapist who specializes in both chronic illness and trauma, because I have yet to meet anyone to this day with chronic illness who doesn't have trauma. Um, I think um, non-toxic living is another one. Um, mitigating toxins in your life so that your, your body can, can focus on what is, what is actually toxic in your body, like not adding more to the plate, if you will. Um, meditating has been an amazing tool for me and meditation can look different for everyone. Sometimes we're like, oh, you meditate every day. And it's like, yeah, but sometimes my meditation is for like 30 seconds and that's okay. It's whatever it's, it's a bite-sized approach. It shouldn't make you feel like you're obligated or oppressed. It should make you feel like it helps you and is a helpful tool. Um, of course, like neural retraining, we already discussed that. Um, Mm. journaling <laughs> journaling was you know I look at I look at healing as a as a pie and each piece is just as important as one or the other and all of these things are 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 pieces of the pie I'm describing um support groups that are solution focused not problem focused you should leave you should leave any social interaction feeling good and energized, not depleted, not concerned, not hopeless. And the moment you do, those are, those are components of dis-ease and we're all trying to avoid dis-ease. We're already in that. Let's try to, let's try to move away from that. And the opposite of dis-ease is ease. So you get into any social interaction or anything you do in life and you, you want to feel ease um, around it. So I think that's a big one. Um, prioritizing self-care and whatever that may look like to you. 
um, easier said than done, of course, but uh, keep going back to, you know, finding your joy and what makes you happy and not being concerned about what other people think about it. It's, it's whatever works for you. Um, I think movement, like we discussed, is really important. There are, um, uh, Victoria Failing, I know, is one on Instagram, and she actually, she's a coach, and she specifically works with those with chronic illness and creates um, exercise plans. She she does, like, she offers, like, a bunch of free, like, uh, exercises on her Instagram for being couch-bound or bed-bound and, like, teaches you how to do them. And I think if you work with her, she creates an actual um, plan, which is, which is nice. And she gets it. She has, she has Lyme herself and she's currently healing from it. Um, and it, it's, it's great to work with people who are healing from Lyme because not only do they understand where you're coming from and offer you so much compassion and like, and flexibility because often, you know, I, we were planning on doing this podcast, I think over a year ago, but I had some health stuff come up. I mean, I've had to reschedule more than once. And you guys have been like the kindest about it. And that's reflective of how awesome you are as human beings, but also like the positives of being around folks who are healing from, um, chronic illness. They, they really understand. And with that comes this, this ultimate compassion. So back to working with people who are healing, um, they get you and they're realistic and they usually have extremely hopeful stories, which we all need to hear from time to time. Um, and I think like one of the, you know, the biggest tools is like believing you can heal. Like I'm going to, I'm going to repeat this over again, over and over again. You can heal. You can heal. You will heal. You know, these words are powerful. Our bodies hear everything we say everything. And even if it sounds like complete BS at the time, just keep saying it over and over and over again, because your body will start to believe it. Your body doesn't understand um, nuances between something that has happened and something that will happen. Meaning if you visualize something wonderful, that's going to happen to you. Like if you meditate and you visualize like, I'm going to be hiking a mile in two months. That's where I want to be. And you keep imagining it or visualizing it. Your body's going to start to believe it. It's going to start to believe it will get there. So those are, I would say like my, um, my biggest tools that I continue to use. So let's focus on journaling and the journal that you've created. Can you share with our listeners the work you've done with journaling and how you are bringing your journaling experience to the larger community? Sure. When I was asking far and wide for any recommendations to heal me, because I thought I was dying. I'm like, I am desperate. Tell me, give me anything. Someone had recommended the walls protocol. And uh, if you're not familiar with Dr. Terry walls, she healed herself from, um, MS, multiple sclerosis, she was wheelchair bound. She was incredibly sick. She went from that to uh, riding a bike within six months time because 
she did all of this research on what worked on, um, I think it was like lab rats and applied it to herself, of course, in like larger quantities. <laughs> um, <laughs> Cause she's, you know, she's a little bit larger than a rat. Uh, so she just started experimenting with herself and she, she figured it out and she created a book around it. But one of the things she's like, before you start my protocol, you need to start journaling. Like that's, that's what you, you need to start doing. And I, you know, I thought it, I mean, I journaled maybe in high school and, and, you know, maybe a little bit in college, but I never took it super seriously. And what she meant by journaling is like, she was like journaling, maybe some of, some of your symptoms. And what I did was I'm like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to start, I started creating prompts for myself. And yes, like there were the, uh, you know, how much, how much I slept, what I ate, what fluids I took in, but then I added more things to it, like where my blood pressure was, where my oxygen was, where I was in my menstrual cycle. But then I'm like, you know what? There's also this emotional component because I started reading more about the mind-body connection. I'm like, I'm gonna create some some like emotional prompts as well to see where I where I am mental health-wise, you know, in all of this. Um, and then I started reading about gratitude and self-love and how much that plays a part in our in our mental and physical health so i added a prompt for gratitude then i read a story about a woman who was so 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 sick and what she started doing was she started um telling every body part of hers how much she loved it because there's a prompt about one thing you love about your body and she was able, it was radical remission, but she was able to heal herself. Like, even though she totally was like disgusted by her body and what it was doing to her, she would go through every little body part and express her love for it. So I added that as a prompt, which was both one of the most difficult, I think it's arguably one of the most difficult prompts in the journal, but it's also one of the most um, uh, cathartic and healing because healing prompts because we get to a point in chronic illness where we hate our bodies. We think it's attacking us. And in fact, it's totally the opposite. Our bodies want us to heal just as much as we do. What our body, our bodies are just, they're under attack. They're under attack and they're doing what they're supposed to do. And it feels like they're attacking you, but that's, that's not the case. And creating this new and healthy relationship with our bodies is really beautiful and amazing. Um, self-love and compassion are just profound components of healing. Anyway, I was really tired when I created these prompts, but I knew it needed to be done. And I would write them night after night. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to look for a journal that's sort of similar to this. So I don't have to keep writing this down. Like I only have so much energy, so many spoons in one day. And I found some that were like symptom journals. I found some that are like mental health journals. I found gratitude journals, but I didn't find any that combined it all. And I'm like, well, even if I find one that has like half the prompts, at least it'll save me. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't find anything like it. And I realized this needed to be created, um, not just for myself because I, I was tired of, of writing these prompts down, but because it needed to be shared with this world. And, 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 you know, in this process, because I realized this months down the line that it needed to, to, to happen, you know, I would look at where I was and some days I'd feel so crappy. Like I'm not going anywhere. Like I, I'm still so sick. And I would go back to an entry like a month or two ago and think like, oh my gosh, I am way further than I thought I was. And it, I, I needed to see that written down to really recognize that. 
And then I would also, I also notice like which supplements maybe were causing me issues or which food, or I noticed I didn't, you know, when I didn't sleep this amount of hours, I was more symptomatic. Like I was, I was able to really start tracking my health. And like, that's when I felt like chronic illness, Lyme disease, and Matt, maybe you can agree with this. It can feel like someone's taken all your power away from you. It's I can totally, totally relate. Bad. Like someone's just siphoned it, sucked it out. And you're like, we were saying like, you're just a vessel of a human being and, and that's it. And when I started journaling every day, I felt empowered for the first time in a long time that like, I was, I was tracking my health. I was connecting the dots. I wasn't depending on someone else to do that for me because they kind of were, they kind of weren't. And like we can, we can heal ourselves. And, uh, the, the journal got me to the point of, of realizing that in, in many, in many ways, and, and then being able to take the necessary steps to add in other healing modalities. Like we had discussed, like eventually DNRS, eventually EMDR. You know, your, your journaling process is more than just tracking information. It's also done in the context of pro-social emotions like gratitude. So talk to us about how you connected both the empowering elements of tracking your information so that you are A, tracking it and B, having the ability to look, look back to see how you've improved and to see patterns that are developing over time, but also doing it in a way that's allowing you to have gratitude so that you will have a pro-social emotion that will allow you to continue to heal. Yeah, the so my prompts were created to with a brain fog in mind, meaning like it's so like you can you can fill out an entry within five minutes or you can spend 20 minutes filling it out. It's it's meant for, for anyone on the spectrum of chronic illness. When I was doing research on journaling and its impact on physical and mental health, like I knew, I knew its impact on mental health. Like there's, it just, it helps you process what you're experiencing, you know, experiencing. And I think that's like, everyone knows that. But when I, when I read that, um, it actually helps you. They've done a study on wounds and how people who had open wounds who journaled healed quicker than those who didn't. I was, I was pretty mind blown. Um, and when I started doing research on like these various components, like you had discussed like gratitude and how gratitude plays such a role in healing. I'm like, I, we need to, we need to bring that in because if you're just documenting your symptoms, it might, um, it may, I don't know how to say this. And we were talking about our flight or flight mode. If it's just symptoms and you just, you feel really negative and that's all you're, you're tracking and documenting. It may keep you on that hamster wheel of I'm not doing well. And you, you know, you, you repeat that to yourself, like clearly this, but when, you know, I intentionally have you track your symptoms first and your vitals and your, your food and whatever, and then we move we move over to an emotional component where we check in with our mental health, where we check in with our frustrations, where we check in with any, any symptoms we're having. Then we, we move down to one thing you learned today. When we move down to one thing you love about your body, 
when we move down to what are you grateful for today? And then when we move down to one visualization exercise of what's one thing you want to accomplish tomorrow, just one. And, and one thing you accomplished today. And if you look at my entries, my accomplishment was sometimes as simple as I took a shower today. I brushed my hair today. I ate, <laughs> I was able to like make myself a meal today. You know, those things, you know, accomplishments are on a spectrum, but when you have chronic illness, when you're that sick, those are a, that's a big deal. And every little thing needs to be celebrated. Um, and then the visualizations, you know, and doing research about visualizations, like I discussed, the, you know, our brain's not recognizing the nuances of something that uh, has already happened versus something that hasn't even happened. Um, I've noticed, and not just for myself using the journal from so many people who, who have, they're like, just jotting down one thing I'm planning to do tomorrow has, allows me to do it. Like I, I actually end up doing it and um, I don't feel overwhelmed with, you know, what I need to accomplish the next day. So every single prompt is, has been, is thoughtful and research-based and, you know, also um, based in my own experience and understanding. So if our listeners would like to either purchase the online version of your journal or the hard copy, how would they go about doing that? Yeah. So you can go to um, www.beginwithintoday.com and um, you can also use a code take bootcamp for 10% off, <laughs> which I, which I created. Um, uh, yes, you can, you can purchase it on there. You can also purchase it on Instagram or Facebook also at begin within today. Um, and I, the name is just, you know, I think it's really important to talk about the, the name of, of the journal of my psychotherapy practice, because everything begins within and you can start over at any given point, any day, any time. If someone was looking to get in contact with you and work with you professionally, are you taking patients and how would they get in touch with you if they wanted to work with you? I am. I do have a waiting list at this moment in time. However, I am starting chronic illness groups as of next month. Um, and they're going to have various focuses. Like there's going to be one um, on self-love. There's going to be one about relationships. Um, there's going to be a caregiver support group that I'm starting because we need more of those for our lovely caregivers and family members. Um, there's going to be one on entrepreneurship and chronic illness and just working in general. Um, I may even have one about like following your ease and the importance of that. And uh, those groups are going to be a lot more accessible because A, I'll be able to take in more folks into them. And then um, the price is a little less than what I would charge for one-to-one -one, um, psychotherapy. I also should mention that I do uh, facilitate a monthly um, Lyme disease empowerment circle through um, the Bay Area Lyme Foundation and, uh, and their San Diego um, Lyme Association, their chapter. So if you'd like to attend that and see what maybe group therapy may look like, you can feel free to. It's free for all to attend, including caregivers and loved ones, anyone affected by Lyme disease. And we even have people who maybe 
don't know if they have Lyme disease. They're on their, they're on the journey of getting diagnosed and figuring it out. And, and I will say there's not, you know, although Lyme does get brought up here and there, that's not the entire focus of the groups. We choose different topics each month. And I think people feel quite empowered and hopeful when they walk out of there, which is the goal of, of getting together and doing this. So now I'm going to ask you our final question. Sure. Your mom played a really important role in your life. Not only did she um, take care of you. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're going to make me cry again. Well, your mom, your mom took care of you when you were born, when you were unable to take care of yourself. Yeah. And then you had this circle in your life where you were unable to take care of yourself again. And your mom was the person who took care of you. Yeah. So now I want you to tell me what advice you would give to her or someone who is as good to, to the, anyone in the world as your mom has been to you. If she came in and showed you that she was being bitten by a tick, what would you recommend that she do so she wouldn't have to go on a terrible chronic Lyme disease journey? Um, first of all, I think, I think I'd mentioned this in the questionnaire. Um, I'd learned that, let's just say if you found um, a tick, uh, rubbing, applying liquid hand soap in a counterclockwise um, direction over the bite forces the tick out of your skin and should keep the head intact. Um, and I know the Bay Area Lyme Foundation, like when you would place it in a bag, like any amount of the tip you're able to get out and um, you can send it for free to the Bay Area Lyme Foundation. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll test it. But, you know, in the interim, don't wanna waste a moment of time. Um, I would contact a Lyme literate physician ASAP, 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 um, in order to find out what to do next. Um, and then in the interim of that, I would, personally load up on anything that supports the immune system's function. Um, like we were discussing like vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, um, whatever works for your body. Um, and then keeping calm, like, of course, it's really scary to see a, you know, a tick and to know what we know now about Lyme disease. It's really frightening but the best thing you can do is keep calm. Not everyone develops Lyme disease as you know, you you've experienced yourself, you know, with, with lots of tick bites. Um, so not to like presume the worst to hope to really hope for the best stay in a calm state until you can see the doctor um, because our immune system functions best when we have, um, the parasympathetic taking the wheel, not the sympathetic. We want, we don't want that cortisol overloading our system and affecting our immune system's function. We want our immune system to be like completely supported in every which way. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Christina Cansavos. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Christina and her Lyme disease journey, please visit our Instagram page at Buen Quamino, B-U-E-N-Q-A-M-I-N-O. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided by past podcast guests. 
We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or on our website. Thank you for listening.